So it is July the 2nd, and we're starting our, our Bible study together on the conscience. And I've already referred to the book as an outline. The book does a good job by way of, a, of an attention getter here. I think it'll help us as we get started. I've already talked about how much information is in the Word of God about this particular topic, the conscience. But yet, when was the last time that you heard a sermon particularly about the conscience? I've never heard one that I know of. I've never heard one about the conscience in particular. Certainly, it's been referenced and mentioned. Anybody who studied through Romans and you get to chapter 2, as we're going to do today, you'll, you know about the conscience. But as I said, there are some other uh, additional 29 other verses that deal with it throughout the Word of God. Have you ever, <clears throat> have you ever mentioned your clean conscience in your testimony? When you're giving your testimony, do you talk about having a clean conscience as the Apostle Paul did? That's what Paul did. He put it up as an accreditation saying, my conscience is not condemning me in this matter. It's not doing it. Did those who uh, discipled you talk much about keeping a clean conscience? The necessity of that. Okay, And we may do that. We may respond to that reality without calling it conscience. But that's what we're responding to. I think sometimes we would most often refer to the Spirit of God. The Spirit is working within us. And we don't really realize, well, you can, you can kind of divide that a bit. The Spirit uses our conscience, a gift from God, to do that. How many ministry books emphasize, he says, the unbreakable link, as Paul did, between getting your conscience under the Lordship of Christ and achieving success in church ministry and in church missions? Do we really understand and know the link between active ministry, effective ministry, and missions even, as it relates to conscience. And our study will get into that and we'll explore that. And did you know that a proper understanding of conscience is indeed a key to church unity? When we look at Romans chapter 14, which I trust by the holy design of God, our pastor is preaching on right now. And then we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. This is where the Word of God teaches Christians about how we're to get along with one another when our consciences differ. See? So the Word is replete with dealing with this particular topic. So it does have an impact even upon our church unity. Also, he adds that uh, there are great benefits from studying the conscience. Obviously, we believe that or we wouldn't be doing this. He adds that you'll want to know how conscious relates to your spiritual maturity. It's an issue with spiritual maturity. You want to know how to get along with people who have different personal standards than you do. If you're a pastor who suspects that a significant number of your church's problems stem from disagreements about disputable issues of conscience, this would be a good study, he adds. You're a missionary who needs help negotiating the minefield of differences between missionary and local consciences. And one who wants to avoid importing merely cultural Christianity. And this is something if you talk to somebody on the mission field that they're constantly aware of. And how blind we are sometimes in thinking that what we experience here 
and Georgia and the southern part of the United States is just universal. Well, it's not. And perhaps in our day and time with people being able to move about and and to go here and yonder like they do, uh, it might not be quite as much an issue. But on the other hand, it affords opportunities. The day affords opportunities for people to go to other places, other countries. How many of you have been to other countries? Okay. Different, isn't it? Yeah, uh, our writer here, our, one of our writers, Crowley, he was a missionary in Cambodia, and he relates a lot of his experiences about things he did and did not do over there by way of cultural norm or cultural acceptance that you just, you just wouldn't do here in the United States, and vice versa. Those things are important to know when you're trying to win people, when you're trying to show respect to the people whose country you are in and so forth. So it's a whole different dynamic for people who are on the mission field, and I would think they would be uh, very much apprised of these principles and so forth. He adds that if you want to help people in your church understand why they have cultural clashes with those of different opinions and habits, this is a good study. If you want to learn how to adjust your conscience to match God's standards without sinning against your conscience, or you feel the weight of a guilty conscience and want to experience the freedom and sheer happiness of a clear, cleansed conscience, then you're in the right place this morning. So we hope that that will be a reality for you as we continue in our study. But take a moment and think about these particular questions. What exactly is conscience? Do you know the answer to that? What should you do when your conscience condemns you? How should you calibrate or adjust your conscience? Is that even the right thing to do? How should you relate to fellow Christians when your consciences disagree? How should you relate to people in other cultures when your consciences disagree? And if you can't answer these questions, our writers add that you might be living under a perpetual weight of guilt simply because you have not dealt with issues of conscience. Sinning against God by ignoring or disregarding your conscience. The scripture speaks very, very clearly about that in both Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8. Missing out on the joy that attention the conscience can provide uh, and then hesit- uh, hesitating to adjust your conscience because you don't know how to do it safely. We have an apprehension about adjusting our conscience. Without a whole lot of knowledge, I think most of us would tend to think, mm, nah, this is God speaking to me here. Well, and indeed, He probably is. But then you have to answer the question, is the position I hold, is where I'm at on this particular issue, first off, is it what? Biblical. Does it reflect the revealed will of God, the Word of God on a particular issue? He talks about harming fellow Christians who hold different convictions than you. He talks about contributing to sinful divisiveness within Christ's church or proceeding unwisely in the way you're spreading the gospel to non-Christians in other cultures. So that's what we're going to look at. That's what's going to be dealt with as we continue. So I hope that's uh, something that you want to do. He actually, uh, the writers actually do not go in depth in defining conscience in its entirety until we get to chapter 2, which I thought was odd. Uh, But at any rate, they give us something to go on. When it asks the question, what is conscience? We need a little basis to begin. And it's simply this, your conscience is what you believe is right or wrong. 
It's the conviction that you have, that you hold to, about what is right or wrong. And as a result of this, what does that produce in our life when there's a struggle? Or if we fail against our conscience, what does that produce? It produces guilt, does it not? We feel guilty. And our conscience speaks to us when we violate it. So, you can fail to develop your conscience. Everybody has a conscience, we'll see. But you can fail to develop it. It doesn't come to us fully developed. Children certainly don't have a conscience, do they? I ate breakfast at Cracker Barrel this morning and finally had to get up and leave because of the language of this guy sitting next to me. It was really spoiling my breakfast. Uh, So I got up and, and left, okay, only to go out into the parking lot to see a young woman who was getting out of her car with a pair of those sprayed-on blue jeans. And I thought, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? And, and of course, I I was processing all this through what was on my mind about the conscience. Why does some folks' conscience not register over things that my conscience registers over? And we would like to think within... A classroom like this, ooh, we get the word, we get it the same way. We're all together, aren't we? See, there's always those little areas. Nobody's conscience is the same as we'll see. What does that say to us? Does it necessarily say that, well, you're wrong and I'm right? Or vice versa, does it say that? And perhaps the greater question is, what is my response supposed to be, as we've already mentioned, towards someone whose issues of conscience, if indeed it is an issue of conscience and not an issue of preference, how am I to work with that person? How am I to get along? Does the Bible say anything about that? Well, the good news is, yeah, it do. It does. (laughs) A lot. has a lot to say. whole book's been written here. And there are others, I'm sure. So, conscience is inherent in our personhood. We're made in God's image, so we have a conscience which is capable of what? Moral judgment. We have a conscience capable of moral judgment. We're different than the animals. I'm a dog lover. I don't have a dog. The best dog to have is from someone else who has one who brings it over (laughs) to your house. But I'm a dog lover, and I... uh, They don't have a conscience. Now, you might think they do. You might think they understand a little English, but they don't. They do do things because they're created to do that. They respond to things. We're not that way. We're created with the ability, and it's it's a part of us, moral judgment. This is part of how we give back to God. Would you agree with that? This is part of how we give back to Him. When His Word and His Holy Spirit do its work within us to change us. And we become a reflection. We're that which Christ talks about. We're that light shining in the darkness. We're the salt of the earth. And once again, it's not because of us. It's because of Him. And without this ability to do that, to uh, impact or, or to display a correct moral judgment, we wouldn't be able to do that. So God has created us to reflect Him in this thing. 
So, it's the moral, it's the moral aspect of God's image in us, our conscience. So we can kind of put that in the right box here this morning. But what ought to surprise you, our authors say, is this, is that you would even care, that you would even care about the verdict of your conscience. Why is that? What makes us care? What makes us respond to that? This Call it an entity, a reality, a presence, if you will, within us. Why do we even care about that? They say it's a great mystery. You can't explain it anyway except it's what God has put within us. You can't, certainly can't explain it from a physiological or psychological standpoint. I'm sure there are those who try, but they fail in their attempts. We're that selfish is where I'm coming from. We would rather, if we're honest, we would rather take conscience and put it away. We still have that. Now, if you've been walking and striving and growing in the grace of God and His Word, as Peter says, and you say, well, I'm not there, I'm way beyond that. But yeah, you are, but you still have that potential. And that's where you came from. That's where you came from. I'm constantly reminded of this because I have a two-year-old granddaughter. Constantly reminded of it. And it says a lot about our responsibilities to young folks, does it not? So he adds that the conscience actually feels like an independent third party within us, does it not? Now you often see it displayed as, as what? With the cartoons, with the guy over here with the pitchfork and the, the little one over here with the halo, you know, saying do this, don't do that, and so forth. Uh, not, quite, not quite like that, but it does... Uh, suggest that there are decisions to be made. There's a proposition put before us that's going to guide the way we think. It's going to guide the way that we speak. It's going to guide, obviously, the things that we do. It's going to guide our omissions in all of those areas. See, this issue of conscience. So we identify, as I say, that, that third party that's there. And it's a great mystery. And it's so powerful because it produces guilt. The conscience, as we've said up front, produces guilt. Now, I won't take you into my world just a little bit. And by that, I mean the police world. While we were away um, week before last out in... uh, out west, you know, doing our thing out there on vacation, back at the good old Ackworth Police Department, a man comes in. He walks up to the front counter there and talks to our two ladies who are there to greet the public behind bulletproof glass. And he does whatever he's going to do, or maybe he was foiled, I don't know. He goes out the front door, goes around right under my window, blows his brains out right out there on the grass. Okay. And I dare say to you that is could be a lot of things, but we wouldn't be too far off by saying that that is an issue of conscience. To take a person to suicide over things that cannot be rectified. And certainly I've seen this acted out many, many times. I'm sad to say in my professional career, I think perhaps... Uh, the one that I think about the most back when uh, Elvis died, I answered a call out here. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't answer this call. I was actually off. I heard about it. They run together after a while. 
but there'd been a suicide and uh, Elvis had died and we went over there and the uh, lady was lying on the carpet in the fetal position, had all of Elvis's albums around her and had purposely overdosed on pills because Elvis had died. Okay. Can the conscience, issues of conscience, be impacted by evil itself? Remember Satan's number one tool against us. You can always sum it up under one thing. We can take this word and study it too one day. Deceit. Making you think something is one way when it's another way. Deceitful. And he can certainly get into that and do his work and cause people to do things. I'll give you one more. When I was, last time I was on the road at Zone 3, uh, we answered a call, a suicide, guy had gone down behind his house, shotgun, boom. And his wife had no clue. She was just beside herself. She said, why would, why would he do this? Why? And she had no answers. It was obvious she had no clue. And of course, you know, there's always an investigation, a background investigation. And she did not know that this guy was about to be questioned and probably jailed on a molestation issue. She didn't know that. And then, of course, from his perspective, looking at his choices, everything that he had brought upon himself was about to bring upon his wife and family, he succumbed to suicide. Conscience. It's a very powerful, powerful thing. And I only share these to take us to a point where we look at it and we say, God, if you've given me this gift, this gift of conscience, if you speak to me, if this is part of how you order my ways and, and uh, providentially you know, guide my steps, and I want to understand that, and I want to make sure, as Paul said, I want to make sure that it's clean, that it's honest before you, and I want to make sure that it's accurate. It would be very ar- arrogant for us to say that, for us to think that we have in some way arrived at our biblical understanding, right? And of course, this is a lifetime process. We know some things that we, you know, would, you know, uh, we stand on a hill on, on a number of issues, doctrinal issues, as we should. We're not to be blown hither and yonder, it says, by every wind of doctrine. There's some things that we are to know that we're to settle on because they are crystal clear in the Word of God. There are other places, there's some more fine-tuning to be done in our life, particularly when it comes to what we allow in our life and how we respond and how we respond to others. This is all about our continual sanctification, our progressive sanctification, if you will, and being made over into the very image of Christ. He wants to perfect us. And that that, that process continues on in this life. We ought to be excited about that. That we have this great potential of not being tomorrow what we are today. For Christ's sake. That we might be closer to Him. That we might understand His Word more clearly. That we might be more effective in our ministry. Dealing with our conscience is a big part of this. So, we've already mentioned some Scripture. We talk about Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And he's going to take us to, I guess, verse 18 through 20 here. Because we know from Romans 1, 18 through 20, 
it tells us that all humans know intuitively by the witness of nature that God exists and must be absolutely powerful. The Word of God declares that as a truth. That's helpful to me when I talk to someone who claims to be an atheist. Uh, I often ask him, I ask him, I say, you know what the atheist's last words were right before they ran into the tree at 80 miles an hour? No, what? Oh, God. Okay. It's, in, it's built within them. You got to work hard, according to the Bible. You got to work hard to get God out of your consciousness. Talk about a delusion. Talk about a deception. And it's highly uncredible, if you will. Maybe I should say incredible for a person, to me, to claim that they don't believe there's a God. Well, I want to say, get your head out of the sand, brother, sister, whatever. Because on the authority of God's Word, it's been declared to you. And it has. It has. Un- unrefutable. Unmistakable. So we know that. What does it say there in Romans 1, 18, 19, and 20? It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. It's made known. For God has shown it to them. End of story, right? End of story. But verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are what? Clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. God's creative activity. Even His eternal power and Godhead so that they are without Excuse. Now, I would hope that in our evangelism, we could use that from time to time to kind of help people warm up to the fact that God has revealed Himself. You might even say that He does care about them. I sat and talked to a guy one time for a couple hours. I said, you've never been drawn. You've never been touched in any way. Nothing has ever grabbed your your thoughts, your psyche, your heart, whatever you want to say, and turns you toward God? He said, no. I don't believe that for one minute. So I know right now, based or then, that based on the Word of God, I'm dealing with someone who is under a severe deception. So the problem there, or the effort there, goes to, look, trying to show this guy just in a very practical way, no, man, you... God's been dealing with you all along. And if you'll be honest with yourself, challenge them on it. If you'll be honest with yourself, you, if you think about it, you can tell me a couple of three times. You've put them somewhere back, okay, in your experience, because you know also intuitively, instinctively, if you will, by God's gift and grace, you know where that's going to go if you deal with these issues. And before it's over, you're going to be repenting and you don't want to do that. Your whole life's going to be changed and you don't want it to be changed right now. Kind of start waking up a little bit. So it's there. We know it's there because God's Word says it's there. He has manifested Himself to everybody. 
It just really goes to the nth degree really to, to demonstrate the depravity of man, does it not? Just if it were not for the grace of God, if it were not for Him reaching down, if it were not for Him pouring His grace into our life and opening up our eyes, or as He says about Lydia, opening up our heart to receive the truth, where would we be? Where would we be? Well, we'll be looking at those verses again, I'm sure, later on. But right now, look over in Romans chapter 2. And when we talk about conscience, these are always, I think, the first couple of verses that come to our mind in Romans chapter 2 with verses... eh, Let me start with 12 and... uh, We'll read down to 15. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are justified in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts. We have, we have it placed there. We, we have this concept of right and wrong. Though, flawed though it may be, we have that device, if you will, placed within us. It's written in our hearts. Their conscience, he says, Paul says, also bearing witness and between themselves their thoughts, and here it is, accusing or else excusing in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So here we get some language not only about the reality of right and wrong, godliness, you know, what is right, Universally, what is wrong? God has put before us. He's done it by nature. He's placed things within us, within our heart, as it says, that we know intuitively. He's put them there because we are moral beings. He's done that. We're capable of moral judgment. But then he adds, very descriptively, he says that the conscience can do what? It can accuse or it can excuse. Oh, really? Well, tell us more about that, Paul. Why? why? How do we know? Well, it comes later, okay? What what did I say? Chapter 14 and over to the the church at Corinth in chapter 8. But we know that. Well, that ought to get our attention. You mean this conscience is not a rote thing. It can both accuse us, convict us, if you will, and, and eventually convince us in our life about thoughts, words, activities, so on and so forth. Yes. And it can also come behind us and say, man, you got that right. You did that right. You said the right thing at the right time with the right attitude. Don't you just love that when that happens? Would you not agree that the first thing you think about, I trust, when that does happen, and it might be rare, is that, you know, that's God. That's not me. God is using me. He's using me. This is an amazing, an amazing thing, and we start deciphering it. We go from this great reality about the depravity of man to this this most wonderful thing that God does within us, even with the problems that we have. 
the shortcomings that we have. We have a conscience that will work if it's founded right. We have a conscience that will guide us and will direct us in any situation if in our own heart and mind Jesus Christ is the Lord of that conscience and not us. Sometimes I think we want to handle it in almost a mystical kind of way. Well, you know, this is my conscience. Ooh, you know, I just I can't do this. And there's nothing wrong with that initially because we ought not go against our conscience. We'll say more about that later. But it's a complex, complex issue. So we do that and we share that initially from God's Word. Again, to get our attention about where we're going with the study, this issue that Paul brings forth to the church. And we'll do a number of times regarding the conscience. And we'll see. Also, with this, uh, the verses here from chapter 2 in Romans, did you notice the last part there in verse 16? It makes this connection between the conscience and the day of judgment, does it not? Where was it? 16. I'll read it again. He mentions, "...in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel." Why would Paul add that? Why would he add that at the end of this, this, uh, this discussion about conscience? Because somebody could say, well, they've never heard the gospel. So they want to make sure that it's based on the gospel. Could be. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but you could be right. Man. Yeah. Anything else? I think Paul is just alluding to the fact that we, again, intuitively know that as the guy said, there is a God and I'm not Him and there's going to be a judgment one day. This issue of judgment, this issue of accountability. When did you first realize that in your life? Ask yourself that. When were you first made aware that there was this accountability Uh, expected of you, maybe even later on, maybe even in your very young years, but that one day, every thought, every word, every action, in some way you were cognizant of giving an account of that? Just take yourself back right now in your own experience. I can go way, way back. And I mention that, that do with me, it's the same for everybody. And I can say, you know, that was put there by God, I certainly wasn't taught that at four or five years old. But just this, this air, this expectation of accountability, somebody might want to say, well, that's just what your parents put into you. No, I'm not, I wasn't thinking about my parents. It wasn't that. It was something that I couldn't put a name on. I couldn't describe it. I couldn't identify it. I could only say that it existed. That's all I could say. Conscience. Accountability. And I think Paul is referring to that here, and he's referring to it in a way he doesn't give any great explanation about it because he knows everybody knows that. It's people who think they can live any way they want and get away with it, again, are deluding themselves. They're under a great, great delusion. And you can rest assured that in your abilities, your opportunities rather to share with people You take them down this road at the right time. You take them there. It's going to strike a nerve. It's going to, at some point, it's going to ring forth to them as a truth. See? And they'll have to walk all over it. They'll have to cut it out and do something with it according to the Word of God.
We know intuitively that these things are true. But man in his lost and dead spiritual state does what? He tells us. He suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. That's what he told us earlier. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, for the pursuit of unrighteousness because it doesn't gel with what they want. Doesn't gel. If, if there was some way we could get an alarm to go off, and there is a way, we'll talk about it, if we could get an alarm to go off in our hearts and in our minds when this happens, and we could evaluate our thoughts, we could evaluate our words, we could be more in tune, I even like to say, with the timing of God in ministry and so on and so forth. We could be at the right place at the right time saying the right thing because our focus is not upon ourselves, it's upon God. It's upon His Word. We can do that if we're sensitive to our own conscience. If we're, and I'll go, if we're sensitive to the truths of God's Word. If we're truly operating in the Spirit. And you would have to say, well, if we're being selfish over anything, then we're not operating that way, are we? How can you? You can't. It's one way or the other. And to me, it's just, again, uh, demonstrations of God's grace that He blesses us like He does with this reality. A demonstration of His grace. There are consequences. There are consequences. And we'll talk about those. The conscience, rest assured, is a priceless, priceless gift from God. It produces guilt. And what is the purpose of of this guilt. What's the purpose of it? It's like a warning right on your dash. Good analogy. We know from other analogies what happens when we don't have these warning lights, right? When we don't have the, the natural inhibitors that pop up. I think often the, you see the, you know, the example used with leprosy. You know how Hansen's disease, I mean true re- leprosy. A lot of times you see the word leprosy translated in the Bible just means the skin disease. I'm talking about Hansen's disease where it affects the nerve endings, okay? It affects your nerves. And people literally wear away their fingers and stuff. They get burned, they get scratched, they get cut, and they don't know they're cut, burned, or scratched. And they get infected and all this kind of things. That's the horror of that disease. Why? Because the warning light's been turned off. You don't feel anymore. And I want to ask you something. I want you to examine your heart. And I'm going to take you to a, I trust, a deep place right now. Have you ever been to the point in your Christian life, have you ever been to the point in your Christian life when you felt like you had hindered, for whatever reason, you had hindered the work of the Spirit in your life to the point that you were about to be shelved. Have you ever been there? That you were in danger of saying no too many times or maybe even perhaps saying yes. You were in danger of that. And you immediately, maybe immediately, maybe not, but you became aware of the fact that something has to change here. Something has to change. Because if you have... That was the voice of conscience through the impact of God's Holy Spirit working within us to get our attention, to change us, to draw us 
almost always to a point of repentance and obedience in our life. This is a God who loves us and cares for us greatly. The guilt that your conscience makes you feel should lead you to turn from your sin to Christ. It should lead you to desire the Word of God more fully in your life. That's what it should do. That's what it's designed to do, if you will. And that's where we want to go. That's what we want to be responsive to. And how many times do we evaluate these decisions in our life? Do I do this? Do I not do this? Do I go there? Do I not go there? Do I hang with this person? Do I not hang with this person? How do we evaluate that? Be honest. What most often is the key ingredient there? What influences our decision the most? Conscious, but what, what particularly? What motivates us to make those decisions, to make those choices? What do we have to get around before we can see God clearly in those decisions? Put it that way. We've got to get around ourselves. We've got to get around our own selfishness, our own desire, what works for us, what we want at that particular time. See, this business, if you will, about following Christ and embracing the Word of God is an all-out perspective. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's full on. It's not a halfway effort. We appear half-hearted sometimes because we're so destitute in our obedience, right? We're so unclear. We're still struggling up that mountain to understand and to find our place. God will bless that. He'll bring us along, but we constantly fight self. Can you step outside of self long enough to bring the impact of God's Word and God's Spirit on a particular issue? Can you do that? Our conscience can guide us in that. It can, it can be spot on or it can be a hindrance. It's a hindrance if it comes from the perspective of not something that's cut and dried in the Word of God, but something that's better described as a, as a preference in our life, okay? But we know that. We have that. Conscience is also there for our joy. And we'll get on over to Romans uh, 14 uh, a couple of three times. But when we get there, we'll look at uh, verse 22b. I'll go ahead and tell you now where it says, Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Or to say it like this, to know that we know that we know, okay? That we're convinced about something. And not just from our own insight, from our own uh, digging per se, but from the impact of God's Word. God's Word through the Holy Spirit, has brought to bear on our heart an understanding, an understanding. In no small measure, this describes my transition from, you know, Arminianism to Reformed theology. I mean, that's it, okay? And you can look at it on a number of scales, a number of examples. But to get to a point when you are confident you believe something because you're convinced from the Word of God. 
It's not a gray area. Okay? It's something that you know. Why? Because we're dealing with this book. We're dealing with absolute truth. Don't, don't lose sight of that. We're dealing with absolute truth. So that's what we have. And our conscience is so much a part of that. We desire to be blessed, don't we? We want to be happy. Pursuing God in true faith reveals Him as the only, the only true source for the most enduring happiness. And I don't use that word in a worldly sense. We could say joy since we're more acquainted with that word and you know, being a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But we want joy, don't we? I do. Because I understand in my Christian life now that I can have joy all the time. I can be sad over circumstances. I can be grieved over the impact of sin in my life or in somebody else's life. But I can still have joy. Because I understand more. I understand what God is doing. I understand the potential for goodness and for change. I understand all that. Well, I understand all that at a certain level. You with me? (laughs) I certainly have more to know and to understand. But I'm thankful for what God has done. I'm thankful for that kind of joy. See? And I hope... Each and every one of you have that. If you have it, it's because you've received it from God based upon the truths of His Word. Not necessarily on your own experience. God will not fail in His promises. People will fail you. We don't like to admit it. Our spouses will fail us. We hold them to a standard sometimes that's absolutely impossible, don't we? We do. Our children will fail us. Our relatives will fail us. Our employers and our supervisors will fail us. It'll happen. But can you still smile, not in a or non-thinking kind of way, but because you know that God is sovereign and that nothing happens in our life that He's not a part of. And He's about showing us the error of our ways and giving us that opportunity to repent and to be changed and to follow Him and to experience more of His goodness. So conscience is there for our joy. Our joy. We know that. Conscience is all about right and wrong. As I said earlier, and as he says in the book on page 24, he doesn't do grayscale very well. Conscience doesn't. He'll always remind you that there's something else, or your conscience will. I don't mean to equate that with the Holy Spirit. I don't want to do that. Your conscience will remind you that there's more. There's a little more to know and understand. See, But for the most part, the conscience is going to deal and not going to be satisfied until something is either black or white. Maybe that's to say that a decision has been made, a perspective has been agreed upon in the mind and it's been received. But again, it can defend or it can indict. It can excuse. It can do all those things. So it gets our attention and it keeps our attention. I'm going to get through it a quarter after here. Well, know also that your conscience is just for you. No two people have the same conscience, of course. And our writers say that for this reason, perhaps this is why God gives us Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, because these are uh, the best verses to go to to learn about how we're to get along with one another in the church, how we are to treat one another in the church. And maybe that would be a good way, we're getting close, to kind of 
uh, in our first session here. Let me go over to Romans chapter 14. And again, I say, and you know, we're blessed right now to have pastor preaching, teaching through these verses. He's already begun. And we'll begin in Romans 14. Listen, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. All kinds of neat words to look up here, right? And to get clarified as you go along. What are these doubtful things would be the first, first thing that I would think of. That's just a challenge to you this week. Verse 2, For one believes he may eat all things, but he who, who is weak eats only vegetables. Just a little bit. You say, well, okay, big deal. People are crazy about their diets nowadays. No, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about food sacrifice to idols. We're talking about involving yourself in a process that would, in the minds of some, would identify them with pagan idolatry, which they have been gloriously saved out of. And now this. this so you got it? Okay, that's what this is talking about here. All right? Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let him... Not, and, say, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. Really. Paul's giving some commands here. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. Now understand, Paul's still talking about believers in the church here, okay? So we got a mixed bag, right? we got a mixed bag. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And I think we quote that verse a lot, but now you can see it in its context, right? Verse 9, For to this end Christ died. Really? To this end? For this reason, he says in verse 9, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Here's Paul talking about judgment again in conjunction with issues of the conscience. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this. Here we go. Not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. How can we not stop right here and reflect upon what Christ said when somebody asked him what the greatest commandment was and what did he say? He quoted the Shema, yeah. Love the Lord with your heart, with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your mind. Then he said what? The second one, bro, he says, is likened to it. Love your neighbor 
as yourself. This, this is a defining aspect of Christianity. This is a defining aspect of who we're truly serving in our Christian life. Are you serving yourself? Are you serving Christ? And Christ says when you do something for the leader, you give a cup of cold water, He says, in my name, you have your reward. You're doing it unto me. The focus is upon others. They're supposed to know that we love Christ, that we're different, because we have what? John says, we have love one for another. We're constantly reminded to consider the things of another more important than the things of ourself. This is key. This is key. Verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean in and of itself, talking about food, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now these are some principles we're going to be dealing with and looking at as we continue to explore all the dynamics about conscience. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. He's talking about being a part of shaking his confidence, his faith. He's not talking about eternal things here. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy that we just talked about in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. And if we had time to go just deep, 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 we'll do it later. That verse right there where he says, He who serves Christ in these things. We've got to get our motivation right. He who serves Christ in these things. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify or, as we know, build up another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles. Do not, do you have faith, he asked? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he, this verse that we read, who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not of faith is sin." I'm halfway through, not totally through, but halfway through what I wanted to share this morning. I want to go to the end and just remind you as we stop here. Listen, our conscience, if you get nothing, our conscience is a gift from God. Our conscience must be developed. It must be continually developed. It's a sin to go against your conscience. Both Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 say this. Okay, you just go ahead and move forward. You know, you don't know. We sin against our brother in Christ when we encourage someone to go against our conscience. So these are the things that we're going to have to consider and what we're going to have to look at. First, we're going to have to define issues in our life. Are they conscience issues? Okay, and then if they are, are they doctrinal issues? Are they preference issues? What are they? And what is my... Right response here. How does the Word of God give me direction on these things? Looking forward to it? That's what we're going to do.